Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a treat to have you here. Today we're going on a whiskey and gin adventure with the founder of a multi-award winning distillery. To add into the mix, he's a New Yorker making Scottish whiskey in the Cotswolds. He and his team clearly know what they're up to as their whiskey and gin have notched up golds, double golds, I had no idea double golds existed until now, three-star taste awards and stocked in near to 40 countries. UK stores include Fortnum & Mason, Waitrose, Majestic and a host of fab independents. His distillery was opened by Prueleaf and has received the Hidden Gem Award from Visit England and holds the TripAdvisor Certificate of Excellence. I was lucky enough to get to read our guest's book, Spirit Guide and Authentic Life, and have discovered a brave man who made the decision to pivot his life, both personally and professionally, a full 360 degrees, in my mind, to follow his heart and gut. Enough preamble. Here to tell us more is our guest, Dan Saw, author, founder and CEO of the Cotswolds Distillery. Hello and welcome to H&P Dan. Hello, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. So, Dan, your last chapter before founding the Cotswold Distillery was being in the senior management team of what was at the time one of the biggest currency hedge funds, FX Concepts. Would you share with us in a whistle-stop tour with how and why you did a U-turn from this life, what led you up to your barley epiphany, and the founding of the Cotswolds Distillery in 2014. Well, sure. It, it was uh, it was not your typical career move that one makes, sort of at 50 plus years of age. But uh, the times we were going through uh, back in sort of 2012-13 certainly helped. Post 2007, uh, financial markets uh, were not much fun. Uh, certainly, the currency market, um, which was much more difficult to to make money in than it had been before. And um, the firm that uh, I found myself starting out with when I was 25 and staying on for the ride for 26 years, which took me from New York uh, to Paris and then London, unfortunately went out of business. And uh, it had been sort of my excuse, I guess, for years and years of of staying in that career uh, and with that firm that was sort of as good as it could possibly get in terms of uh, uh, being with part of a small and fast-growing firm in, a, in an interesting uh, uh, area, and obviously the money uh, was, was, was good, but it was never something I was particularly passionate about. And um, when I found myself out of a job and, and, and the company sort of um, falling apart, um, I thought to myself, you know, if, if, I was, if I wasn't passionate about it when it was sort of built to perfection, what's it going to feel if I just sort of take my CV in hand and go off to the next sort of hedge fund down the, down the road and, and, uh, and pitch myself as a marketing person? I, I just didn't have it in me. So it was time to start thinking um, uh, a little bit more outside the box. And uh, well, I went pretty far outside the box, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. You definitely did. So how, you know, why whiskey? What was it, Dan? What did, what flicked you, the sort of switch in your head? Well, so my 
parents, I guess it started a little bit with my parents. My parents were both European, they're both uh, from Poland, and they immigrated after the war to, to the States and lived in New York. And uh, although they, they loved the life in New York, um, I think they always had more of a, a European sort of cultural sensibility. And that went to, you know, all the, the, the sort of nicer things in life and food and drink, etc. And holidays were very often kind of more in Europe than often the you know, Grand Canyon or Yosemite or, or, or whatever. Um, and so from an early age, I, I came to appreciate that. And I became a bit of a foodie and later, I suppose, a drinky, um, <laughs> such a word exists. And um, uh, I always loved France, particularly. And I was a bit of a Francophile. And I had taken French for years and years and years in school and somehow managed to convince my old company that the place they ought to put me is in Paris. And uh, I bought myself 10 years of being an American in Paris, that sort of time-honored tradition. And that's where I really could let my inner foodie kind of go and really get to understand more about provenance and terroir and weekends off to the, you know, wine country and um, and all the rest. And uh, so I, I loved that. But then in 2000, something happened, uh, which sort of led me down this road, which is that I was invited to an evening meeting of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which is a wonderful group based in Edinburgh that uh, uh, buys casks and then bottles them for its members. And every cask is different. Every bottle is different. And when I tried this, um, I'd had whiskey before, but it was a run-of-the-mill sort of commercial whiskey. But when I tried some of these wonderful single-cask uh, bottlings, um, a light bulb went off and I said, my gosh, the Scots have beaten the French at their own game. They've out terroired the French. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, little did I know, but I soon realized that the French are even uh, more mad about uh, single malt than, uh, and, and whiskey uh, than, 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 than the Brits. Um, no way. They, they, they're the world's largest consumer of single malt whiskey. Hold on, Dan, because there are some interesting bits to your story that you're not sharing with us at the moment. And the thing is that because I've read your book, I sort of have this insight. And there is a fascinating story. There's two that I think are really valuable to your story. Uh, one is the cask with Dave, and I'm going to try and pronounce this Scottish distillery correctly, Brucladdy. And okay. the the other one is your barley epiphany, Dan. Absolutely. Well, they are they are they are both key elements in the in the story. So the cask with Dave. So Dave was my partner in crime, my whiskey buddy, and uh, it was our second year of going off on our annual boys trip to Scotland that we found ourselves on Isla, which is a magical place and home to uh, many many wonderful distilleries. And uh, we were driving around, uh, sort of in in the rain. It was raining sideways, and I remember we pulled up somewhere to sort of almost get out of the rain, and it was Brookladdy, which is an old distillery. It was from the late 19th century, um, but it had been closed for many years. It had fallen on hard times before it was then bought by a group of investors who had reopened it just the year before. And so it was just getting going and there was quite a buzz uh, about it at the time. And we were taken on a tour by the head of production himself, a gentleman by the name of Jim McEwen, who is an absolutely incredible person and a charming uh, sort of the the Blarney itself. I mean, just the, the way he could wax lyrical about the whiskey and the 
people and the place. Um, and uh, he had us uh, so enthralled that by the end of our half-hour tour, um, he'd signed us up for buying a barrel of whiskey, um, which is not what you typically do on a tour. You might <laughs> pick up a bottle in the gift shop, but we walked out owning the equivalent of 300 bottles um, in a cask that would be filled in our name and put, put aside to age. And something happens when you end up being the owner of a cask, it becomes almost like it becomes your home team, that distillery. You sort of follow it uh, all the time. And, and that was the, the the whiskey cask. And then cut to the summer of 2012 when my, my uh, we were out in this small, in this farmhouse that we own in the Cotswolds uh, that we had bought, uh, my wife and I, uh, as a weekend home. And uh, I was looking out at a field. So we're basically on an acre or two in the middle of a 600-acre farm that we don't own. Uh, we just sort of sit on it, and we watch what they plant. We live by the seasons and whatever they happen to be planting. It's usually cereals. And that summer, it happened to be malting barley, spring barley. And uh, it was July. It was a beautiful afternoon. And the barley had just, the barley that was planted that year had just gotten up to that height where it just sort of waves and does that that thing in the breeze kind of, you know, just so you see the ripple going through it and it's mesmerizing. And I was just watching it and I, I suddenly had a thought, which was, you know, these guys aren't the only people growing barley. It grows up and down the Cotswolds. Um, and I thought of Brooklady and its Isla Barley. And I thought, well, why has anyone never made any whiskey here? It seems like, you know, the, the Brits have always been good for brewing or, or distilling wherever they sort of are. And there's certainly a lot of, there's a brewery, a wonderful brewery, a few, towns over um, from us and there's cider making but no one ever made me whiskey and I thought to that fact and I thought to the 30 million visitors that come to the Cotswolds every year and I thought perhaps there's room for a destination distillery here and that was where the idea got its start. And you were very lucky because you you know before you'd got your initial well as you were getting your initial production on the go you already had uh, retailers hot on your heels placing orders well yeah i mean the, we we always planned on being a whiskey distillery but we sort of as i say we kind of had this unexpected love child um on, on the way to whiskey which was <laughs> our, our 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 gin um we wanted to have people come and visit even before our whiskey was out. And whiskey takes three years by law mm. um, to be called whiskey. So you're sort of working, you're obliged to work in the shadows for three years. But we thought, well, what are we going to offer folks who come to visit our shop um, before the whiskey? And we thought, well, gin would make sense to sort of start with. It was things were just getting going with the sort of gin renaissance um, that has been happening in this country. Um, and you were seeing a few real pioneering brands on the small, kind of craft side of things like Sipsmith, um, Sacred in London, uh, a few others. So we um, we took the money. It was sort of almost all play money. I mean, I was so far in over my head anyway that it seemed like another 50,000 pounds for gin still um, wasn't, wasn't too much. <laughs> That's not much. Um, so we, 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 we bought Lorelei, our wonderful 500 liter gin still. And um, around the same time, I think a week after we started making whiskey in September of 2014, uh, we made gin, um, but we never really thought that would be much more of a thing than our own shops. In fact, my business plan didn't even have us hiring a salesperson for the first three years uh, because I thought trade sales um, wouldn't really happen until then. And then sort of lo and behold, our, our first uh, order, uh, which was from Fortnum and Mason, no less, um, came in about a week after gin had first come off the still for the first time. So 
so things changed quite a bit from then. And in a way, Dan, was that a double-edged sword? Because you, I would imagine, having set up your business plan, you had planned for your whiskey and not necessarily for the gin side to take off, which meant that you were going to have to push money in that direction as well as with the whiskey. Did did that cause you challenges? Absolutely. I mean, we we realized this not really with that first Fortnum's order in in September of 14, nor with the Harvey Nicks order that followed, nor with the listing in Majestic, which was initially a couple of local Majestics and then semi-national and fully national across 200 plus stores. But where we really realized it was in 2016, when we won uh, an award for world's best London dry gin at the World Gin Awards. And what happened was Poor little Lorelei, who we thought we would be running, you know, once, maybe every you know, three or four times a month, let's say. We found ourselves running her to within an inch of her life, sort of twice a day, seven days a week, just <laughs> to keep up with demand. Um, and we make gin in a particular way, which um, does not scale very easily. Um, we do something called single shot distilling, which means that you know, what comes out of the still is what goes into bottles. Um, many distillers actually make gin concentrate in their stills, which can be cut several times over with basically vodka. Uh, and it's a way in which you can really scale your equipment much, much better. But but we always were focused on big flavors and big taste. And uh, so we found ourselves paying the price in terms of trying to just keep up. So in 2016, we kind of found ourselves faced with a decision uh, as to whether we were ready to or willing to double down in effect on on gin and and create the kind of make the kind of investment that we wouldn't have probably needed to face for another three or four years with whiskey um, and that meant getting a bigger still and so we bought Dolly um, Dolly is uh, stills by the way are always are traditionally named after a women and Fantastic. ours are all, all named after uh, musical women um, so oh, Lorelei really? was a, yeah Lorelei was a um, there was a Gershwin song sung by Ella Fitzgerald and it was sort of about a, a mythical maiden of the Rhine and, and Lorelei happens to be a Holstein still from Germany so we thought that was appropriate and the, the jazz thing she, she looks pretty jazzy with her sort of <laughs> copper column with holes looking like a saxophone sort of. um, and then Dolly, they named Dolly, we always think, either because she was sort of big and brassy uh, or because <laughs> they were hoping that after the experience with Lorelei, they would never have to work more than nine to five. Um, uh, <laughs> and and Dolly is two and a half times the size of Lorelei. Um, and along with buying her, we also needed to build a new bottling hall because we didn't have enough room and we needed to hire more people and we needed to bring in more investors to help us with the equity sort of financing for that. So everything just kind of, the, the risks got bigger um, and the speed at which we all had to work got faster. And I would argue that it sort of has taken five years, really until about where we are just now, to get back to the sense of equilibrium that we sort of had in 2016, where everything now is much bigger. I mean, there's 40 countries, as you mentioned, there's 30 products, there's 50 people, there's 12 million pounds invested. Um, and now, believe it or not, we're sort of having to face the issue of whether or not to double down again, but this time wow. on whiskey, because now the whiskey has been out for for four years um, or almost four years. And um, the, the, the success is, is, is really kind of quite quite staggering. Um, so um, it, it's always about that. It's, I think it's about 
sort of deciding whether or not you're willing to double down. And, and sometimes that there's a price to be paid uh, in terms of the intensity at which you work, the growing pains, the risks you take on. Um, so it, it's, it's, it, yes, they're nice problems to have. My dad used to have an expression called silken worries, I suppose, you know, the, oh, the, 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 the nice worries. And, uh, and, and it's certainly better than not having business. But of course, you do, you know, there's a statistic out there that most businesses that, uh, you know, don't survive, uh, don't not survive because of lack of growth. Yes, it's lack actually of more cash. In, either cash or just managing the growth and dealing with it. So it is something that we, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about we we want to be here for the long term this is really one of the greatest attractions of this business is is its potential to sort of be a a legacy really and 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 outlive me i mean it takes so many guts but so uh, what i i want to share with the listeners is a lovely quote which dan writes about his fundraising and he compares himself, it's a brilliant analogy, uh, at one stage, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but you were sort of on the tout of trying to find investors to put in 50 grand a month. And he says that he see, saw himself as a marshaller on the runway, guiding down private planes using bottles of whiskey and gin as my signalling ones. And I absolutely love that. Well, it was actually that's exactly right. Except that it was sort of more not necessarily private planes, but you know when you're at Heathrow at night, you sort of see one on top of another, on top of the next, and they're all sort of coming in. And we had created a funding vehicle, which yeah, the the sort of the the uh, the membership in this club, so to speak, was fifty thousand pounds, and that was fine. That was really nice. Um, we were getting great investors of the the exact type of investors you'd hope to have local patient, benevolent, passionate. Um, a lot of them now, you know, good friends sort of socially. The problem was, as we continued to ramp up and with the sort of working capital requirements you have with whiskey, I mean, you know, they're, they're just really killer. You, you think about a lot of times people talk about, oh, I have a, I have a big working capital need. It might, you know, it's 90-day turnaround on working capital. Our turnaround's three to five years. I mean, we're making things that we won't be able to sell for years mm -hmm. and years and years. And so once you're in the swing of it and once you have sales that can then fund that over manufacturing so that you're laying down stock, you know, you're okay. But trying to get into that rhythm um, requires those planes to be landing every uh, every month, that sort of 50,000 every month. And, and, you know, luckily we sort of, in future rounds, we're able to do a more sort of traditional, you know, one or two months and everybody comes in and then you, you know, you have, uh, you have your cash and, and then, you know, you've never, of course, raised enough and you've always spent more than you expected and then you have to go back and do it again. And, and so we've, we've been in that routine now for, um, you know, six, seven years, but I think, you know, we're, it's a very exciting moment right now. And, and I've heard someone else actually another entrepreneur say that it always seems to be kind of in the seventh year that things start to kind of work a little bit better and that same entrepreneur i remember referred to profitability as being like the bow wave of a boat you know the faster you mm -hmm. go the faster it goes out in front of you always just a little bit out of reach but we're finally now at the point where we we are um running uh, at a 
at profit and and able to sort of self fund um and that's a huge relief after this you know very long run up to it but in actually it's interestingly seven years for a whiskey distillery is actually pretty short typically people talk about 10 years as being the the runway you need to to hit profitability and i know the gin has definitely been a help for that so dan how would you say that all that compares with the sort of mega deals that you're probably doing in your finance world, the sort of pressures and the responsibilities? Well, I mean, I work harder at this than I ever did at the hedge fund, um, and it's 24-7. I mean, I was able very much to leave most of my work sort of at the office um, with the old job. Um, you don't leave work at the office in the slightest uh, uh, when, when it's your company and, and you're the founder and ultimately the, the person who's on the line sort of. So um, it's, it, it is 24-7. And when I say 24-7, it's, you know, if I do wake up in the middle of the night, I will be thinking for at least an hour if not two, uh, until I just get tired again ab about various issues and not necessarily all of them sort of stressful. Some of them very exciting about a new, a new product, a new strategy, a new focus. Um, so you live it. So I would say the biggest issue really is, is being able to try and find a separation, you know, the sort of work-life balance that uh, was easier before because uh, what you did during the day was less passionate than, uh, uh, than it is now. Dan, what have you found to be sort of one of the biggest differences from working for a corporate to running the Cotswold Distillery, would you say? Well, um, I, the corporate that I worked for was still very much, even though at our height we were managing $14 billion in assets, it, it still was a small company at heart. Um, I mean, we were competing with the likes of, you know, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch, but we were still, you know, 50 people, about the same size as the Cotswolds Distillery, actually. So there was still this kind of... Uh, edge we were nimble we we sort of sometimes things were done a little bit by the seat of one's pants and one could afford to do that more in that business because it was a services business right mm -hmm. there wasn't you didn't have to plan in the way that you do in manufacturing there weren't issues you know in terms of pipe fill and supply chain and packaging and lead times and and it's funny because my mother who was a doll designer and worked for a doll company always lived in this world of manufacturing and sort of planning next year's christmas this year and all this kind of stuff and uh, and now i find myself sort of in that in that world so um whereas i wouldn't say it's either of my experiences was more corporate i think this does involve the need for a lot more planning and better integration. And how has um, the pandemic sort of affected the Cotswolds Distillery? What has it shown you and your team? Do you think? Well, it's been um, it's it's been quite an interesting year. When it first happened, we were like every other business in this country. We had no idea. It it, it felt. I describe it a lot as sort of you know. Going over Niagara Falls in a barrel—that's sort of a, an American sort of analogy. But um, it felt sort of at that point is that where we had been shot off the lip of the waterfall and we were in midair and had no idea how hard we were going to hit the water um, and and whether we were going to break into a million pieces. Um, and at that point, I mean, that was at the point at which we had to close all our three shops. We had to uh, cancel, you know hundreds of tours that had been pre-booked um, where the on-trade and hospitality you know, closed down. And we started, like many people, I think, 
doing our kind of disaster scenario planning in terms of what happens uh, if various levels of revenue are, are wiped out. And we went down to 50%. I mean, we basically planned for what does it look like if 50 per, if our sales declined by 50%. And it didn't look very nice. I mean, our, there was not a lot of cash left over. And thankfully, we had just finished a sort of a funding round, which we had done earlier than we usually do. We had good reserves. And well, we didn't know whether we could withstand a 50% drop or not, but um, uh, but we, 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 we slowed down our production because obviously a lot of that takes up cash. There were the inevitable furloughs in terms of our, our shops and our visitor center. And then we started thinking about which channels, you know, would have the best chance at surviving, which sales channels. And we uh, we felt that it was going to be the sort of the off trade, meaning stores, shops, particularly sort of grocery, because they stayed open, and online, uh, e-commerce. And so we put a lot of focus on e-commerce, and we put a lot of focus in our off trade strategy. And ultimately, what happened, very much to our benefit, is that people not only continued to buy, but with the extra time that they had, became a little bit more open to exploring, trying new things out. And and we were one of those new things. And so long story short, that year we thought might be 50% down ended up 25% up. Wow, well done. Um, And all really driven by off-trade and e-commerce. So we'll see what happens. We, you know, we're really looking forward to the sort of reopening of hospitality and the bars and pubs and restaurants coming back. Dan, um, I have been studying my wine and I was reading recently about the devastating state of this year's harvest for France with the weather. Is whiskey affected so much with the terroir and is climate change affecting the ingredient side of whiskey at all? Well, that's something that we've been wondering as well. I'm, I'm I haven't yet dared to um, sort of pick up the phone and uh, speak to our, our, we actually are, we're currently getting our barley from two farmers, um, two farms in the, in the Cotswolds. Uh, one of them, which has been sort of our principal supplier, um, wonderful fifth generation family, and they farm, they're tenant farmers on the Blenheim estate, so Blenheim Palace, so they're about 15 minutes away from us. And um, uh, the other one, actually rather rather well known, um, uh, Adam Henson from Country File, um, <laughs> really? has, 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 a, has a farm in the Cotswolds, and we we've uh, bought uh, Adam's barley in in the past. So, um, you know what we've and and as a matter of fact, actually we bought a fair bit of Adam's barley um, off of the. 2020 harvest because that was a challenging year. So 2020 was challenging because it was such a gorgeous, warm, hot spring, but there was no water. Mm-hmm. Um, this year has been challenging because you know the seeds gone in the ground and, and then there was a frost. The effect that that's going to have on the harvest, I'm not, to be honest, sure of yet. Dan, what skill set would you say that you've had to draw on to create and grow the distillery? Well. I, I think that what's most important is that uh, if if you are the visionary guy, and I think most companies need to have a visionary guy or girl, um, you need to have a clear vision and stick with it, and 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 not allow yourself to be, you know, uh, moved away from it. I had a pretty simple vision actually. Uh, I said I, I I I want to make a whiskey that I would want to drink, and I want to make it in a distillery that I would want to visit. 
Uh, and I had had a lot of that was the only experience really I'd had was drinking whiskey and and visiting distilleries and 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 I very naively felt that that's really all there is to it in the drinks business. What keeps your morale buoyed up, Dan? If it's lagging or waning? Well, I mean, uh, I'm luckily I'm 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 lucky enough to have a. a very nice um, <clears throat> bar in my living room, and that's not to say that that's what I hit the minute my spirits wane. But the middle, the center shelf of that bar, um, which is probably a good sort of four four foot long or wide, is completely full end to end of Cotswold's products, and so it's it's sort of like having your family there on the on the shelf looking. And anytime you sort of need reminding of why you do this, you can open one of those bottles um, and and just sort of revel. I mean, I, I'll, I'll share something with you, which is really the truth, and you can you can hear it right now. Um, oh yes, I I've, can. Ching ching I've, ching. I've, what have I've, you got on the I've, go? I've I've got. I'm 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 not a daytime drinker, and I'm not really drinking, but I am I am nosing while while I'm speaking to you, and I'm nosing something that um, it's my first chance to try uh, because it hasn't even launched yet. It's launching on Friday. It's our newest whiskey, and um, because I've been working from home mainly, um, sometimes I'm the last person to taste what we actually bottle. And uh, this has been bottled last week, but um, and a lot of people say, "Oh, that's really good." You know, people in the company, but I haven't even had it. I mean, I had it when we were sampling casks, but I hadn't had it since it was yet bottled. And um, and it's just such a delight, and it's just giving me hope and faith and and uh, and and passion, you know, all all anew really in what we're doing. What it is is every. Uh, spring, we do a limited edition whiskey. And we've uh, come up with a, a name for it called Hearts and Crafts. You mentioned being a Virgo and a type A personality. What does that make you as an individual, would you say? Well, the Virgo, I suppose it makes me a little bit OCD at times at the edges, um, you know, in terms of the sort of order and and, and needing to be able to think of things in, in a certain way and not not being able to necessarily juggle or, or, or multitask particularly well um, but but needing needing for I, I don't know so much if the part of my personality that that uh, has sort of defined what I've done in the business has come from the 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 virgoness uh, so much as it is from being a and I, I'm sure you've probably done these myers Briggs um, personality tests but they they type your personality over a certain number of different predefined types and and mine is definitely sort of the visionary guy it's to have the idea and then to move have the idea get it going and move move on um my wife uh said i always oh, should have been a movie producer i was a kind of person to say let's put on a show kind of and then and then leave it to others who are more capable to actually make everything sort of happen um and and that's kind of defined what i've been like the past couple of years i think the part of what I do that I enjoy the most is the new product development, coming up with ideas, how to solve a, a problem or how to address a perceived need and then go with it. But um, then that relies on a lot of what I would call plate spinners, um, people who can spin the plates and, and make things actually happen and, and finish projects. And thankfully we have some amazing folks who can do that way better than I can at the distillery. So Dan, I asked my guests about their inner critic. 
I don't know if you have an inner critic, but if you do, you know that voice in your head that says you shouldn't do this or why didn't you do that? If you do have that sort of inner critic, what do you do about it? I have the biggest inner critic uh, the world's ever known. I mean, I, I'm, 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 if anything, I think way too self-critical. Um, I, I just have grown up with that. I've always, I've always been that way. Um, and I would actually say more uh, good than harm has come from that because it's, it's uh, kept me from sort of allowing myself to be too headstrong, too cocky, too, um, you know. So. Um, I would say that uh, you know fear and humility are are really good assets when you're starting a business because you you know you realize you know how easily and how far potentially you can sort of fall. So I I, I guess to quite a great extent I kind of embrace that um, that inner critic and I I I make him or her whoever it is it might be a, a woman inner critic I don't know but I mean I basically make you know I I need to rationalize that fear or that worry. Who do you think, or what would you say has been your greatest influence? In in life, probably very much my parents. I admire what they were able to achieve given how hard a life they had in their first, you know, 25 years and what they made of it. And, and I am what they sort of made me, for, for better or for worse, I suppose. Um, uh, and then I have a whole set of folks who I admire um, in the profession that I'm in, um, uh, which go from the folks who, whose benediction I sort of sought to, whose blessing I sought really to, to, to go out and do this to the mentors who helped me, um, to the people who work with me, um, and, and to some of my competitors who really aren't competitors so much as their friends, colleagues, peers. It's a great business. It's a really nice business. It's a business where even the people who you're competing against um, you know, are, are quite close. And uh, it's, much, it's a much nicer business than, uh, than, than Wall Street. I mean, you're, back to your parents, Dan, they showed incredible resilience with what they went through with World War II, anti-Semitism and, and communism. I mean, you talk about your father escaping, I don't know if I pronounce it right, Janowska concentration mm -hmm. camp. Yeah. And, you know, your mother spending the war hiding in a forest with, in your words, local partisans. What qualities would you say that you absorbed from your parents? resilience definitely mm -hmm. speed of decisions uh pers persuasion you know sort of stick to itiveness I, I suppose i don't know if that's the right word sort of um, discipline yeah uh, but i i i think there is something about survival in fact actually my, my katya made a comment my wife made a comment the other day which uh, she 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 reminded me of something that my father had said to her which was that when he looks at people he kind of he would he would estimate people in 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 terms of whether such and such a person was the kind of person who would manage to escape from the Gestapo. It's, wow. it's not the not the kind of analysis of people that everybody <laughs> sort of does every day. But you know, in other words, as a survivor, I guess you look at other folks and say, do do you have what it takes to survive? Are you going to land on your feet? Are you going to be able to, you know, shift the paradigm, deal with change? Um, you know, come out on on top. And I had two great examples of people who had managed to do that. And, um, you know, although I've never had to deal with anything remotely 
like what either of them have gone through. Uh, thank heavens. I do try and always work towards being that guy who would figure out a way to escape or that guy who would figure out a way to make a situation sort of work and, and come out, you know, in decent, decent shape. I love the way that your father said, you know, not to work for the man. He was really about, wasn't he? Oh, that's what I felt. He was about freedom and working for yourself. And he sounds he incredible. Did. And he did. And as I sit here right now speaking to him in my sort of little home office, which has a great view out over the the garden, and I, I you know, wish that he would have you know, been alive to, he never actually saw this place in the Cotswolds. My mom came out here a few times and absolutely loved it. She was a mm. big nature lover. Both my parents were big nature lovers, but uh, I think my father would have been very happy to have seen me in, in lockdown working from my home office in the tracksuit bottoms that we all sort of wore <laughs> last year um, and and finding this kind of balance um, and, 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 and achieving this balance between work and life, which actually really kind of did come to me more in lockdown than it ever had before. Um, and, and I have to admit that as much as I love being at the distillery because I love the buzz, I love seeing the people, I love seeing what's going on, um, it is very easy to be sort of drawn into it. Um, and the, the past year I've been living in this very strange kind of netherworld where I've been almost running things virtually, almost like a video game. Mm. So, Dan, would you be able to tell us what you've learned about yourself from being a business owner? Probably, I guess I've learned to trust in my vision. I've learned to, you know, I, I think to believe in myself. I, I've, gained a, I've gained a confidence in running this business that I never had in all the years before. And I was, I was doing what I did before for much longer um, at a level which involved a lot more money but somehow never really derived the, the the confidence in myself that I have from this and that's probably what I am the happiest about really um, to have had this experience I was I was a guy who as they say you know um, worked to live and I, I never really quite understood the whole concept of living to work Whereas to now be in an industry where people really, you know, can be and are passionate about what they do is a joy. It's great in one's lifetime before retiring to to find out all that work can be and what it can do for you and to you. I'm not sure you'll ever retire, Dan. Right, quick fire round before we hit this very exciting box of chocolates. Optimist or pessimist? Optimist. Introvert, extrovert, ambivert. Introvert. Perfectionist or non-perfectionist? Perfectionist. Early bird or night owl? Definitely night owl. Okay, we have got the most exciting box of chocolates. And I was very spoiled because Dan and his team sent me the chocolates that we're going to taste. And they are Fortnum and Mason single malt scotch whiskey truffles. Now, Dan, share with us why you've picked this magic box of chocolates that I've held off until this very minute dipping into. Well, there's a, there is quite a backstory on this 
Amelia, yeah, I, I, I was stymied when I heard about the, uh, the suggestion, um, <laughs> simply because it's something that I love so much. And I have so many chocolate stories that I could have, so many different directions I could have taken this. Um, now, first thing I should say is that, you know, trying to manage weight a bit, I, I've been focused mainly on dark chocolate, as I've been told, sort of 80% and above, I mean, and some mm -hmm. 90%. And so bitter that you know you have to put a little something on it to get it sweetened. But then I discovered a recipe a little while ago. And ever since discovering that recipe, I make my own sort of daily chocolate. And I need sort of a little wow. square after it. And it's not real chocolate, as chocolate sort of is known, but it's a really fascinating recipe. Three things, cocoa powder, coconut oil, and agave syrup. Mm. Uh, pure cocoa powder, which you mix with a little bit of coconut oil, agave syrup, and I have these little chocolate molds, and you put it in the freezer. And if you like coconut, I mean, because mm -hmm. it definitely does have a coconut taste to it, it's really good, it's really healthy, nothing artificial. And I was going to send you some of it, except it melts. Um, I was going to so, say, uh, you would have received a bunch of coconut oil. <laughs> I have a deep attachment to Fordham and Mason because I they were them. literally our very first listing. Um, four days after our first gin came off the sill, I called them up and I said, I'm making English whiskey. Here's a picture of it. Would you like to, would you list it? And even sight on the scene and untasted, they agreed to list our gin. And then more recently, we're now making Fortnum and Mason's own brand English whiskey, um, for them. How incredible, Dan. Well done. So great, great relationship. So I, I picked this for that. And also because I think whiskey goes well with chocolate in general. Um, and I would have loved to pick out Fordham and Mason English whiskey truffles, but they're not making them yet. Um, well, they need to using, using your whiskey. Obviously. That's our next, our next quest. I was very proud when I supplied Fordham's with my chocolate bars. It was one of my proudest moments because you stand there doing a tasting in the store and you just think, wow, you know, if ever I could have dreamed or envisaged selling my chocolate, it would have been in Fortnum's. It's incredible. Exactly. I have tucked into one while you've been talking away. Oh, Dan. well done. Well done. They're delicious. There's a real note at the end, the whiskey note, isn't it? It comes through once you've gone, you've eaten the chocolate. It comes through right yeah. at the end. Uh, the one that I found the most interesting, I'm trying to remember which one it was, because I think there's three different types of whiskey. Are, I think I there's a Speyside, and there's an Isla, which is the more peated whiskey. I've eaten the one with the ruffled top. Okay. What's that one? Not sure. They, they don't have a key on the bottom, they which is kind of, uh, they definitely need need that. But but I think it's either the, the one with the stripey bits that's, that's dark chocolate or okay. the one with the stripey bit that's um, light with the dark sort of ribs around it that has the Isla. And I think that's kind of cool, that slightly um, phenolic kind of peatiness married with the chocolate. Works for me. So I'm going to pop one in my mouth and see if I, if I hit on the right one. They're beautiful. They are such a treat. They are, I'm going to keep some for my dad because he's a whiskey drinker and I know he'll love them. Now, Dan, you've got to keep working away, I'm so, sorry to say. What are your thoughts on the words success and failure? I think success clearly, after my previous life, doesn't equate to financial gain. Um, what I've learned is I mean, for the first, I did, you know, I didn't, I didn't pay myself a salary for the first few years, and and contrary to what some people may think when they hear, oh, you know, New York guy hedge fund, you know, they kind of think yeah, he's made his money, and this is a hobby. This is his hobby career. Um, mm -hmm. This was not the hobby career. Um, I plowed way more of what it is that I 
have into this than well you gave out your sips or something i read yeah i funded my pension fund um we literally bet the farm in that we basically took a mortgage out on the house here um uh so uh, everything so so this this couldn't fail um but on the other hand there wasn't much money to do things like pay salaries um to oneself so for the first few years i didn't have any salary and then i started paying myself roughly what i earned in my late 20s and just as it did back in my late 20s, the money kind of ran out about the middle of the month. Um, and, and it still <laughs> kind of does that. Um, so, but on the other hand, when I look at what I live on now and how happy I am versus, you know, where I was at when I was making, you know, many orders of magnitude more, um, there's just no comparison. So, I mean, when you look at that, it then becomes difficult to sort of say that success is, is, is you know, money is what defines success. And failure, Dan. Yeah, and fail, f- failure. Huh, you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say what I had been doing pre- previously was a failure. It was, it was successful, but not in a meaningful sort of way. And I, I, I suppose, if you don't eventually find a way to transition into something that gives you a greater sense of self worth and happiness, then you might find yourself one day feeling as though you kind of had had been um and i would have been very worried had i mean i i I would have been very unhappy had it sort of come to that really um but i i I don't even think failing in a business you love is necessarily a failure because as you know you know lots of entrepreneurs to whom that's happened have gone on to start the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the the happiness is in them making it sort of happen and making it work so true. How important is incorporating well-being into your day, Dan? Uh, it's it's very important. It's something that I, given where I am, I don't do nearly enough of. I have a wonderful um, yellow lab by the name of Whiskey who would like, if anything, for me to take him out a lot more than, than I do because I, I am able to sort of fall into the bad habits of getting one, you know, getting stuck into work and finding it's been five hours since you've gotten up and your iPhone is, or your, your what, Apple Watch is screaming at you to stand up, stand up, stand up, and you don't because you're in the middle of something. Um, and we do have amazing walks just straight from home here through the fields. And, and so it's really important to force oneself to, to break from what one's doing and, and go out and take in, you know, the, the beauty that's, in our case, we're lucky enough to be surrounded by. But if I'm not able to do that, then I have Debbie um, who is uh, our our local uh, 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 trainer? Who mm-hmm. uh, p- appears three times a week on my iPad on my Zoom um, and tortures me uh, for an hour uh, three times a week, and and that definitely has helped. But it's absolutely key, particularly given you know the the tools of our trade, the alcohol and and some of the excess. So, what triggers your stress, and how does it affect you physically or mentally? Would you say? I think what. I have the most difficulty with is uh, a problem from within our organization, which thankfully we haven't had too many of, and that's me knocking in the background. Um, You know, external exogenous sort of uh, problems, they're puzzles that you can sort of work around. But I would say problems with with people um, Mm -hmm. are very difficult for me. I I just, you know, it's naive, but I just want everyone to sort of be, be happy and, uh, you know, life is sort of too short. 
Dan, what music makes you feel good and what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? Um, I The music that makes me feel good, I have a little bit of a habit which sometimes drives my wife crazy. I have this French radio station that I listened to all the time when I was in living in France and I can thankfully still get on my hi-fi through the internet. Um, it's called FIP, F-I-P. Um, it's, I think, the world's greatest and most eclectic radio station. There's no commercials. The playlist goes from reggae to opera to heavy metal to folk to French chanson. Um, it's got all female DJs with absolutely the most seductive voices in the world and no <laughs> commercials. What more could you ask for? I mean, it, it, I could listen to it all day and, and I generally do. And so that makes me the happiest. And which books? Um, only allowed one. Though. Only Only one book. Gosh. I suppose it might have to be Notes from a Small Island simply because that's a book that's still, Bill Bryson, uh, mm -hmm. which still can actually get me to cry. I laugh so hard um, with his descriptions, uh, particularly of, of the my adopted homeland, which I love, and I've become British. I got the passport. I signed up. I, you know, I, I, I completely buy into it, but I think I'm also still somewhat of an expat at heart, and I love being able to sort of step outside a little bit and look kind of critically, but in a, in, a, in a nice and, as Bryson's case, gentle sort of an admir admiring way at, uh, at, at my adopted culture. So I, I love the way that he does that and I, I do get a kick out of it. So I enjoy that. What advice, Dan, would you give to anyone who's looking at setting up their business or running their business at the moment and needing a bit of a sort of bit of a needing some advice? I would say don't put it off. Um, go out there, get the advice, resolve to do it, um, go out and speak to people. I mean, I, I make so much time available to people who are considering doing what it is that I'm doing. And I do that because other people did it for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I, if you're like me, you'll find that one of the most fun things about setting up a business, particularly in an industry that you don't know, uh, or even an industry that you do know, but from the of a new perspective of your own company, is the education. The learning, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to learn something new over fifty is 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 really nice. And finally, Dan, where have you had to have hope in your life or business and patience? I've 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 had to have hope. Well, certainly in in this business, and belief. I, you know, I I suppose really, I've had to have a lot of patience, and it's still probably my biggest challenge is to to have the patience. Um, I sort of want this all to work right away. And in the business that we're in, uh, what I've been told by people who know the business much better than I do is that what I need most at this point is time. Mm. And, uh, and, and actually, you know, one of the things about our business is patience is something that is thrust upon you because you can't age whiskey faster than it ages. It, you know, you, you have to let it sit there and, you know, thankfully, uh, unlike me, it does get better with age. And so it's a natural hedge sort of for my, my own decrepitude. Um, uh, and and you, you, you open a cask and you nose it and you taste it and you realize that your patience has been rewarded. So I would say hope and patience actually really define what it is that we love and we make. And where can our listeners find out more about the Cotswolds Distillery and what the latest offerings are and your visitor centre? 
Well, the best way is just to um, Google Cotswolds Distillery, easy name to remember, and it'll take you straight to our website at cotswoldsdistillery.com. And uh, the great thing about our website is it's not only a platform to look at all the various spirits, uh, whiskey, gin, and other. We do a great cream liqueur and all sorts of a limoncello. And um, you can find all that, you can buy it, but you can also walk through our distillery. We have an amazing virtual tour. But to be honest, nothing compares with actually coming out and paying us a visit. And we would love to see anyone who's listening to this come out. And uh, it's a great part of the country, great part of the Cotswolds. Come out for the weekend, come spend a day with us, make a day of it, bring your walking shoes. We have great walks that go straight from the distillery um, with guided you know, footpaths. And so, um, yeah, come, come pay us a visit. You won't be sorry. And also you can check them out on Instagram too. I am definitely coming for a visit. I am absolutely ready to get in my car and drive down. Well, we can't wait. So actually, um, just very quickly, that I think the Isla whiskey is, as you said, the dark chocolate out mm. of that box. Yeah. Very peaty. So I would love to say the hugest of thanks, Dan. You are a superstar for coming on the show. I have so enjoyed getting to know more about the Cotswolds Distillery in your book, which I would recommend to all the listeners. Where can they get the book from? Is that online with you? So the book is available online at Amazon, and then the, the hardcover with the full-color photos is available at the distillery or online through the distillery, but we do a very nice paperback on Amazon as well. So do get that. So, yeah, thank you, Dan, very, very much. Thank you again, Amelia. It's a pleasure. Anyway, before I go, it's time for my recommendations for this episode, which today is a documentary and the quote. So the documentary is called My Octopus Teacher, and it's a documentary on a filmmaker's journey after a burnout and his relationship with a wild octopus in a South African kelp forest. It moved me to tears, and I'm pretty sure it will move you to tears too, and it's available on Netflix. And the quote is, My heart is at ease knowing that what was meant for me will never miss me, and that what misses me was never meant for me. And that's by Imam al-Shafi. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to follow to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it'd be truly fab if you could rate and review it or better still share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, movies, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Open Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk, find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.